0: So, you know, prior to taking this job, I served as an area director for our denomination's campus ministry called RUF. Uh, And one of my responsibilities was to organize these quarterly meetings. Uh, Our campus ministers are actually under the authority of these group of elders in our denomination who have special interest in campus ministry. And they're willing to serve on the committee to help make decisions that are hopefully in the ministry's best interest. And so these meetings, honestly, could be fairly mundane, but but the most encouraging parts were often at the end when these men would pray for campus ministers and the students. And the reason why I say it was the best part uh, is because one particular ruling elder was just known for his prayers. I'm not going to say his name so I don't embarrass him. He actually worships with us every now and then. But there was really something about the way he prayed that was was just different. Um, He spoke very calmly, not excitedly. Uh, He didn't pray with a lot of flowery language, but with a dignity that made it seem like he knew he was talking to a superior. Uh, He spoke very earnestly, asking God for all the grace he could muster while never presuming on it. Sometimes he would get emotional, but never in a way that seemed like it was a show or ostentatious. Well, after one committee meeting uh, a number of years ago, the campus ministers and I were hanging out at an overnighter, and one of the ministers said, hey, Can I request that that gentleman pray for me at each one of my committee meetings? Uh, I almost never walk away from his prayer unencouraged. Um, And then he added this wonderful little nugget. He said, I don't know, it just seems like when he's praying, he's praying like someone who knows me as well as he knows the God that he's praying to. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that where you hear someone pray for you and it it just makes your heart sing. Well, imagine for a moment that you could have one of the authors of the Bible pray for you. Uh, Can you imagine how that would sound with these inspired men who definitely know you as well as they know the God that they're praying to? But here's the question. What would they talk about in that prayer? Well, our passage here uh, culminates in the first half of what Paul has been wanting to say to his favorite congregation. Interestingly, the book of Ephesians divides very neatly into two parts. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 is this grand and glorious explication of the Christian gospel that we've been studying the last few weeks. And Paul is, you know, uh, praying uh, by ending, uh, ending by praying for these people that he's writing to. The second half looks at our lives uh, in light of that, but we'll have a whole lot more on that next week. But I want you to understand what you're getting here in this prayer, because Paul is really passionate about it. He, He starts by saying in verse 14 that he, quote, bows his knees which is really interesting because that was actually not a common prayer posture in Paul's day. Uh, Mostly when you prayed, you prayed standing up. But Paul says he kneels, uh, which means that he's gotten emotional about his hopes for these people. Uh, The insights have driven him to the floor out of love and joy for the topic that he's unfolding. Uh, But second, I want to submit to you that the results of what he's giving to us, and this is really most crucial, is Paul is, by his prayer, giving us an idealized version of our humanity. In other words, the prayer is this culmination of all of Paul's hopes for his favorite church. So what he's praying for is the purest and highest hopes that he could have for anyone who bears the image of God. So the desires that are expressed in this prayer, they give us, as it were, a picture of our ideal self, the very best that a Christian can be. So Paul prays to the Heavenly Father, quote, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That's a Greek uh, play on words right there that basically means the father of all those who are faithful to Jesus. In other words, his prayer is for every Christian, for us to be the best we can be. So does it make you curious, is my question, to see what it is that Paul would pray for you if he could sit beside you and ask God for something on your behalf? You know, we've been looking this uh, semester at God's plan to heal the world through uh, the gospel and the church. And this morning we get this clearest version of what Paul thinks makes us tick. What motivates us? what, what, What leads us into the normal Christian life? And so my hope this morning is that we all have a similar experience to my campus ministers after our committee meetings. Man, can you ask Paul to pray for me next time? That was so encouraging. So there's three things Paul gives us this morning that he prays for us. One, that we would have strength. Two, that we would know love. And three, that we would be full. Let's start with that first one. Paul prays that we have strength. Look at verse 16. He says, He may grant you to be strengthened with power. Okay, that word power there is the Greek word dunamai, from which we get the word dynamite. So so Paul is praying that there would be an explosive power unleashed uh, in your life. But notice where he wants it unleashed. He says that he wants it unleashed in your inner being. Okay, with that alone, we may need to make a couple of notes here. First, Paul realizes that the best way for you to prepare yourself for this life is to effect a change in your inner being. And look, this is really noteworthy because he's writing to a group of people in Ephesus that we know, according to historians, were going through some pretty terrible suffering. And so Paul is saying, look, there are pressures and anxieties that are pressing in on you, but the best thing that you can do in all the midst of this is to have your insides fortified by power. I think this is where it gets really fascinating because Paul does not find himself praying for their circumstances. In other words, he could have prayed for their suffering to end. Uh, He could have prayed you know, uh, uh, cursing psalms down on all of his enemies, but instead he says... All you really can change in your life is what's going on in the deepest parts of your inner world. If you find stability there, then you'll face the difficulties of life, whether they're mild or whether they're severe, with confidence and with poise. Now, I think this is a huge insight, and I wish we had more time to explore it, but it's worth saying that Paul's idea of an ideal person is not one who has found a way... to avoid the hardships and anxieties of life. Rather, he prays that you would be the kind of person who says, Hey, this circumstance is beyond my control. I can't make my spouse love me again. I can't force my boss to be nicer to me. I can't force my children to be happy. I can't quarantine all of Oxford and Lafayette County uh, by myself. The only thing I can control is my reaction to that and that I need that more than anything else in the world to define my inner life. I need to be marked by power and not weakness on the inside. Okay, but that begs a question though, right? Why would Paul reason that way? And that brings me to the second note in this first point, And that is that Paul, as he expands this idea, he is expanding on it as it lays on top of a very particular way of looking at what makes human beings tick. Bear with me for a second, but have you noticed that any someone starts to give you advice, uh, they're always speaking out of a certain understanding of how it is they believe you work? Okay, just for fun, I actually decided to check Amazon.com uh, for books that had the phrase, uh, follow your heart in them, and I came across a book titled, Follow Your Heart, Your Brain is Stupid. <laughs> and I found this quote in the liner notes that went like this. It said, Our lives are shaped by the decisions we make. Decisions about what to believe, what to do, what to say, what to give. The conflict between the feeling heart and the rational brain influences the decisions we make. In this book, the author describes what causes this conflict, what stops us from making those decisions or taking those actions, even though we know they could lead us to where we want to be. Now look, for once, I'm not mocking the guy. (laughs) I just want you to notice the implied understanding of humanity in that quote. Did you hear him talk about the feeling heart and the rational brain? Well, how does he know that the feelings are located in the heart? How does he know that our rationality is located in the brain? In other words, so much of the advice that we give each other on how to live a better life is predicated on a very particular view of our humanity. Well, as it turns out, Paul has a view of our humanity as well, one that is actually rooted in the Bible's explanation of what makes human beings tick. Look at verse 17. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look, I'm sure you've heard religious people talk this way all the time, but for a moment, I want you to question everything. I want you to question everything that you've ever heard in terms of familiarity with that kind of language. And I want you to notice, first of all, this. Paul wants Christ to dwell in your heart. And my question is, what really does that mean? We've got to figure out what Paul is talking about when he translates this Greek word, kardia, that we have translated heart. What does he mean by that? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23 says this. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The Bible says that you have this thing inside you called a heart. And out of that place comes the springs of life. Everything that comes out of you, your thinking, your feelings, your choices, it all comes from that place, which, as the Proverbs writer says, is why you should guard it. So the question says, well, then what is the heart? Well, Jesus explains this to us in Luke 12, 34, when he says this. He says, for where your treasure is... There will your heart be also. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the heart is the mechanism by which you take delight in your treasures. And if you think about what your treasures are, you can consider about what you do with a treasure. You think about your treasure. You find safe places to keep your treasure so it's always protected. You draw off of it as you, as you want to to get the things that you want in life. You spend your money so that you can come into the presence of your treasure. So the point that the Bible is making is that it says your heart is the thing that's doing all of this treasuring. Therefore, your heart is the place where you access the joy that comes from treasuring something. It's the place where you, where you pledge allegiance to things. And so what Paul is saying is, is that he's praying that Christ would occupy that place in your inner being. Now look, I realize that what I just said sounds very Bible-y, uh, very pious, but again, question everything for a moment. If Paul's version of our idealized self is one who has found their delight in Christ, uh, who cherishes Christ, one who pledges their allegiance to Christ, then it means that the chief characteristic of a Christian is to know him better. So you've heard it. It's kind of my custom to say this. Don't let pious sounding phrase turn to guilt inside of you oh, no, I don't don't treasure God the way in which I'm supposed to. Rather, let it make you curious. Like, what could there possibly be in Christ that could become a life treasure for you? What could possibly transfix my heart enough to draw personal strength off of it that will allow me to face this crisis with the coronavirus with poise and with confidence? Well, I think that's a great question, and it leads us directly into our next point. Paul says, first of all, I want you to have strength, but second, he says, I want you to know love. Paul is blown away by what he's become in Christ. You know, verse 18 down there may very well be some poetic hyperbole, but I actually think it's probably a simple statement about what it is that he's discovered. In other words, he says he wants us to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. My favorite commentator on Ephesians, John Stott, says that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. It's long enough to last throughout eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. In other words, this is a great summary of what Paul has been celebrating here. But here's the bottom line. Paul is Paul is showing us a noodle that is baked. Um, And there's a part of me that wonders if some of us don't need to rediscover uh, the value of a blown mind. Um, So back in the 1990s, I used to listen to a a folk singer by the name of David Wilcox. Um, And one of my favorite songs by him was one that was called Someday Soon. The song was really about his longing and his enjoyment of the fact that there's something else coming that's better. Uh, There's something to long for. There's something to hope for in the future. And that he really hopes that that someday soon never goes away. Well, in the bridge of that song, he says this. He says, if heaven is perfection, I'll get my deepest questions answered. But in that big hall, let there be a bright red ribbon that stays wrapped around the mystery of the someday soon. Do you hear what he's saying? Wilcox wants us to know, that he won't be able to get to the bottom of what he's found in God. He never wants that to end. And what Paul is saying to us basically is, don't worry, you won't. So then Paul goes on to say that that love apparently roots and grounds us. We need to have deep roots and a firm foundation if we have love. And this image is of a well-rooted tree on the one hand and a well-built house on the other. So how does love do that? Well, think about it for a second. The only thing that can upset a tree is when it comes into conflict with something else, like a powerful wind that blows it down. Same with a house. The house will stand unless it comes into conflict with, say, a storm surge that blows it down or something. Well, Paul is saying that love will do the same thing for your life by neutralizing any conflict that might threaten you. In other words, love negates the effect that the wind and the storm surge of your inner life that tears down other people. But the question is, how does it do that? Well, look, before you understand that you're saved by Christ and not by your effort, have you realized how, how important your group identity is to you? You know, you, you bank your entire identity on the fact that you're white or black or you're a Smith or a Jones, a, a Republican or a Democrat. But if you think about it, whenever you bank yourself on those kinds of identities, don't you always have to prove yourself? It doesn't matter. If there's a group out there, they hate some other group. They probably join the group to find expression for the fact that they ha- find somebody else threatening. But what Paul is saying is love cast that out. I recently actually made an attempt at watching a, a new Apple TV series called The Morning Show, starring Jennifer Aniston. Um, you know, the series follows a dramatic uh, moment in the careers of these morning TV personalities that were affected by the Me Too mo- movement. Uh, But I didn't make it through the end, Um, not because of the barrage of foul language that means that I can't recommend it to anybody, but I did because of the betrayal of the interaction between the celebrities. Because what was weird is none of them ever really had any real conversations with each other. Like like every interaction as they acted this out on screen was an attempt to kind of see through what the other person was really saying. And so it was completely devoid of anyone's ability to be authentic. And I just couldn't watch it. But Paul's point is that that is the opposite of love. He is working on this premise that believes that we are all sick with a deep-seated insecurity that will most often show itself in a disdain for other groups that are different from us. And so this sign that you're being rooted and grounded in love is when you begin to meet other Christians who are different from you and strangely you find yourself willing to serve them and to show them respect. Why? Because you found a love in Christ that demotes your group identity. He is your identity now. And when that takes root in your heart, it becomes the foundation for everything that you do. Your inner man is settled, and it can't be torn down like a tree or a house. Or, to use Paul's words, you have that strength. Now look, one thing before we go to the next point. Paul throws in a little prepositional phrase at the end of that. Did you notice it when he says, with the saints? Now why did he throw that little sentence in there? Well look, I would submit to you that the primary means by which believing people come to have an experiential knowledge of the love of God in Christ is while they're in community with other Christians. That's how God makes that love known. There's a remarkably consistent thing that I've noticed that when a Christian begins to suffer from these terrible episodes of, of spiritual drifting, it almost always happens during a time in which they are most isolated from Christian community. Look, if you're in Christ at this time, other Christians are your sanity. They ground you. They keep Jesus' love from just being a theoretical idea. You know, I can oftentimes tell when someone has not really dealt with real people in their lives because they get really radical in their thinking. Uh, they get overly dark in their views. They they think on the fringes. And I mean, fine, you know, it takes a village, right? But but there's something healing about a community of Christians that, I don't know a better way to put it, it keeps you from being manic and weird. And so this is what Paul is wishing is contained in our hearts, a love that surpasses knowledge. What is that? It's a love that doesn't make sense to you. It's a love of a mother for her addict son, It's the love that's not connected to the loveliness of its object but but is its own justification because it's rooted in grace and God's affection for screw-ups just like you and me. He says when you take that in, you'll be able to withstand these storms just like coronavirus storms. So Paul prays for us to have strength and to know love. Finally, he wants for us to be full. Look, you roll all this together and you got the last thing that Paul prays for you and there's actually nothing higher than this. A little bit hard to know exactly what Paul means by the phrase filled with all the fullness of God. But the grammar suggests that Paul is not saying that we are to be with what is in God, but actually we are to be filled unto the fullness of God. What that means is Paul is praying that we will all be filled up, whatever that means, to the degree that God himself is a full being. You follow that? In other words, he wants us to be as full as God is full. Wow. Okay, two quick things before we close. Number one, I don't have the slightest idea what he's talking about. But I will say this. I do know that there are tangible moments in my own life that I can remember where you just feel empty. And for whatever reason, knowing the opposite of fullness kind of helps me appreciate what fullness might be. Honestly, I sense it at the weirdest times. It comes after big failures of my own. Uh, Other times it comes after big successes. Sometimes just when I'm alone, it can often even happen when I'm surrounded by friends and family. And I really don't know how to explain it except to say that I'll bet you there's a bunch of you out there who kind of intuitively know what I'm talking about. And what Paul is praying for is from my inner world is that those feelings would not dominate my character, that they would be swallowed up somehow, which is a great question. How? That's the second and last point, because I think Paul, in his mind has the last words of Jesus in his high priestly prayer when he's in the upper room with his disciples. You remember this, right? Right before Jesus goes to the crucifixion, he's with his disciples and he's praying for them. And in John 17, 26, he says this, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I don't know how to say this except just to state it baldly. Jesus' intention with you, if you are a Christian, is to one day finish your life by bringing you into a cosmic, final, consummating dance with the very Trinity itself. C.S. Lewis called it the great dance. This this self-contained, fully mutual, never-ending, overflowing cooperation of pure delight and love. Not that you're going to become a god, but that you'll be caught up in him and know him beyond anything that you have the present capacity to know. It's best to listen to C.S. Lewis from his own mouth in the book Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is being played out in each one of us. Or, putting it the other way around, each of us has got to enter uh, that pattern Take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. See what he's saying? He's saying, we're all made for this, to be in the presence of God. Because once we're there, something amazing happens. Listen again. He says, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm, so you stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you've got to get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, and eternal life you must get close to or even get into the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy spurting up out of the very reality, of the the center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? And once separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Now here's the crazy thing. I wrote this sermon a couple months ago before I ever knew that C.S. Lewis was going to be talking about infections and how you spread and how you catch stuff of what we're all completely preoccupied with now. But don't miss what he's saying. Nearness to God is the only way to experience the happiness that you know you were created to experience. You get close to things and you catch it. You get close to God and you begin to experience this love that comes out of His grace. And this is the crazy thing. God says the way in which you experience that is by the nearness of God's people. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm not allowed to be near God's people right now because we're so terrified of this disease. I realize that. But that's not what unites us. It's not only our physical presence that unites us. Like Scott prayed at the beginning of our service, what unites us is that we are all directed at the same God. That's why Paul says the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So as crazy as this sounds, the answer to all of Paul's prayers can be found in your investment in this crazy, messed up, fickle group of people called Christ Presbyterian Church. And in my view, there's nothing that could be higher than that, which means we're not facing this crisis with fear. We're facing it with anticipation and excitement about what he's going to do in every one of us when he makes his love known through each other. That's something to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you give us encouragement in that regard. Give us relief from our fears and knowing that you have secured our inner being with only the grace that your love can bring. Would you shed that abroad in our hearts? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.